This is Omo. 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 Is this Yoko Omo? This is Omo. This is Omo. I was thinking about wearing flares, uh, bell bottoms. Do you think huh? that's, is that a thing I can get away with as a luthier? Um, like to a particular event or just in like in life in general? Yeah. Just like, you know, shopping for varnish supplies. Well, knowing you, yeah, that's a, that's a definite yes. Well, thank you. I mean, you wore, what was that? A that was basically a dinosaur costume. Basically, that was not yeah. a basic dinosaur costume. That was an exceptional dinosaur costume. Uh-huh. Uh, and although, you tried to do restoration work in that. I see. You uh-huh. keep selling me short. I restored, <laughs> uh, but Janelle Steele looked much better in it. Janelle, all your dino butts are belong to us. She also looked better than anybody wearing the little Omo pins that I made. As eyeballs. As eyeballs. It's incredible. Janelle Steele. Yo, yo. That's bad. This is Omo. (laughs) That's a bad start. Are we going to actually do this? Okay. um, This is Omo, everybody. Hi. This is Omo. Hi, Rosie DeLoach. Hi, Chris Jacoby. You bought a house. Oh, man. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm happy for you guys. It needs paint, and it's wonderful. We love 19th century houses that are beautiful, organic messes. This uh, this place was added on to two to seven times. We're still figuring it out, and it's it's just great. Nice. And there is space for a workshop. Yeah. Yeah, there's great space for a workshop. And Britt gets her artist loft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's got the studio in the attic. She chose the attic, yeah, and it's fantastic. Man, when we when we looked at this place the first few times, it was like there's good storage space in the attic. And then we came back after buying it, and a false wall had been moved away, and there's like an extra three hundred square foot of attic. <gasps> so I'm thinking about growing opium poppies. Okay, I don't know. If that's legal or not. I, you but. should definitely announce that to everyone. I think that's the right way to go. <laughs> hey, so we've got a really big deal interview. Uh, we've got Marilyn Wallen coming up. Damn. Marilyn is a yeah. big deal. She's a big deal. And when she speaks, she is so eloquent yeah. and so hypnotic. And I just got real quiet just listening to all the wisdom coming out of her mouth. I, I was talking a lot. I'm sorry. No, yeah, yeah. It was great. She, you guys did awesome because y'all are buddies. She is so wise. I was very lucky mm-hmm. to to live near Maryland, and I mean near in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Like you get to drive seventy miles an hour to go for an hour to somewhere, <laughs> and here in in Maryland, like it takes me an hour to go mm-hmm. two point five miles. Uh huh. Uh huh. That's the same here in Dallas. Yeah. 
So I lived an hour away from Maryland and I just, I tried to make it a point to see her once a month and that got stretched out, but um, she is such a resource. She's such a powerful maker. And as you said, um, Mm -hmm. when she talks to you about something, she's saying more than she's saying and it pays to pay attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she, oh my gosh, I think she's officially agreed to this. So I'm just going to go ahead and say she's going to be speaking at the Violent Society of America, 47th annual convention. That's a lot of conventions. Yeah. And she and another person who I should remember their names, they are going to be talking about basically the the history of the VSA, Mm -hmm. how we we got to now. Mm -hmm. But like Richardson, Texas, Uh what the hell worth seeing is in Richardson, Texas? Like, isn't that just like a a dump? So there's like... um, my shop oh that's yeah i i was i was thinking about richardson alaska yeah no 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 richardson texas i know that says (laughs) dallas guys but don't be fooled this is a very Mm -hmm. cool place a lot of cool stuff happening here i know many of you will only see the hotels that's that's fine but uh i'm so proud to represent the city i'm so excited that you guys are coming can we go see improv you well, yeah, you got to go downtown for that. But Dang. yes, I got some okay. improv friends. Yeah, let's go. let's go. Okay, okay. Let's dose everybody with LSD at the VSA and take them to improv. Well, I've got the goods. I'm Please ready. don't cut that. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, if you haven't registered yet, what uh, you go to, you know that website. <laughs> bsaweb.org bsaorg.web.com mm-hmm. and and sign up guys come see us come uh be a part of this from what i am gathering you learn so much just by being in the room oh, enter your instrument enter your bow in the the new makers uh room mm-hmm. it, it does cost a few shekels but um not only will you have players trying your stuff you will get some perspective on how your stuff hangs in a room full of instruments and bows by the market today. Mm -hmm. And I tell people over and over again, entering a competition is a fantastic thing, but a competition is political in the harmless sense that it's a river you step into once. The people who are judging will never be the people who are judging again. And you can't hang a rubric of excellence. You can't hang a meritocracy upon it in a way which is meaningful because it is dependent upon the whims of human beings. But getting to a place where you have the calluses and the the courage to put your stuff into a room with your, with our colleagues' instruments and bows and decide, my stuff belongs in here. Now let's see what I admire and how I can do better. The money it costs to be a member of the VSA and to go to these competitions is a a drop in the bucket for your self-worth, for your future, and for Mm -hmm. the sales you're going to make if you can get past your ego and understand those things. Boy, I talked a lot just then. Yeah. (laughs) It was great. Shall we do this? Uh, Chris, can you play us out? Oh, Omo out. <laughs> <laughs>
Today we're talking to Marilyn Wallen, who is currently our Madam President of, uh, of the Violin Society of America and is a medal-winning superhero. Um, Marilyn, how many cellos have you made? Well, number 60 is awesome. on the table. I have finished the rib assembly and I'm down to voicing the Awesome. And uh, for those of you that don't build instruments, I only asked about cellos because a cello is a mighty accomplishment. And uh, Marilyn's <laughs> violas and violins are all over the damn place. Um, but the the sort of career it takes to have taught at the Chicago School, to have taught at UNH, and to, uh, I mean, to have built 60 cellos... Um, my respect for you is massive, Marilyn, and we've been friends for what feels like a long time to me, but um, my very first VSA, you went out of your way to be kind to me while I, I fumbled with social niceties and tried to afford a drink ticket. Um, you and Rodney and a few other people, you know, you, you just made sure that I felt welcome as part of the tribe. And I've looked up to you ever since, and I was very lucky to be in Nebraska with you, working with you. Um, would you give us uh, your most ruthless shtick? If somebody came up to you and said aggressively, why do you think you deserve to have something to say about the violin industry? What are, what are your, your bona fides? <laughs> I would say, well, um, besides the fact that I got a performance mm -hmm. degree on viola and went to the violin making school in Chicago um, and worked at Bainafushi for a few years as a bench jockey um, and then went back and got my degree uh, at violin making school. I then went on to teach at North Venice Street School in the uh, four-year full making program. Oh, forgive me. I said Chicago. I'm so sorry. Uh, no, no, it's okay. I went to Chicago and graduated there, and I still teach in Chicago every spring a varnish workshop uh, and get a, along with uh, great. Uh, that crew great. And we just take over the school on their vacation weeks and all of us know how to behave in a violin making atmosphere and we varnish and varnish and varnish. I uh, have three silver medals and I don't know how many certificates. Uh, one silver medal is workmanship, two of them are tone. And the certificates are in violin, viola, cello, and quartet categories, mixed um, workmanship and tone. I never got it all together at the same time mm -hmm. to get gold, but, um, you know, each one found a home. So, uh, <laughs> I guess they, uh, they cut Excellent. the mustard. And this is your second term as president of the Violin Society of America. Is that correct? Yes, it is. The, uh, first time I was president, we, the board of directors of the VSA, had recently instituted term limits. And so all of a sudden, we had term limited out all the people who had been there for 20 or 30 years or more. And we were pretty much out of people who could rise to the leadership. And so Fan and I were uh, the most, well, we were both willing to do it if asked. 
and we were more experienced with the VSA and more mm -hmm. familiar with the VSA than others. So we just talked on the phone and who's well, and that was a first. big important sea change for the Violin Society of America because uh, with all of the good things that they accomplished. The same people had been running the game, f as you said, for, for decades. And uh, it was it was feeling, I think, to some less inclusive than the future needed. Um, and I'm, I'm super proud of you guys for fighting the good fight there. Thank you. And then I'm I'm president again after 10 years. I was a member of the board uh, for well, it'll be 16 years total, four full terms, and uh, no more. <laughs> I assure you, no more after this. <laughs> um, I am devoted to the VSA and do just about anything I need to do to support that organization. And being the president, being asked to be the president was, was an honor um, a second time as well. Congratulations. And again, it's kind of a transition period where those intermediate people also cycled on and off. And now we have um, an incredibly energetic, young, vital board. Bunch of millennials. How are they doing? Uh, the millennials are doing fine. <laughs> I think they probably get as frustrated uh, with us old farts trying to deal with our technology um, as any other <laughs> millennials. But everybody's there for the common purpose. How can we bring forward the platforms of the BSA to the people who need and want that information? And what's the mission statement uh, of the Violin Society of America, Marilyn? Well, I don't have it in front of me, but it says that the pursuit of knowledge about violin family instruments, the playing, the history, the restoration, the research, everything to do with bowed string instruments that involve understanding Great. more is essentially our, our mission statement. And it is the same mission statement as 45 That's years great. ago. And I don't know that many organizations whose mission statements are still word for word the same. I just I wanted to mention that you said 45 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've got the 47th convention coming up this mm -hmm. November 8th and 9th. Yes. So you have been a part of this, not not since the beginning, but no. since very early Phil days. Phil Cass beats you. Yeah. No. <laughs> you mentioned your first time to attend the VSA was in 1981. Well, that was the first shot I had at attending it because it was in Chicago. But I was a bench jockey at Bainafushi, and uh, they didn't release our seatbelts until the end of the day. So I couldn't get over to any of the lectures. Or I possibly I was on a motorcycle chain to my desk at that point. I don't remember how rebellious I was. But uh, you weren't, it wasn't over until you got dismissed. And so there were some things I would have gone to when it was in Chicago in 81, but it just didn't work. The first one that I went to was uh, 1986 in Portland, oh, yeah. Oregon. This is the first time that you entered an instrument into competition. Yes, it is. And it got absolutely nothing. 
and it deserved absolutely <laughs> nothing. And there's a funny, funny story about that viola. I guess I'm the kind of person who wouldn't go to a competition without showing y'all what I do too. So I didn't go just to watch. I just said, okay, well, I'll take this viola and go. And of course I was finishing and up to the last minute, mm -hmm. which uh, was a stupid mistake I made in my early comp competitions. I've only made that every time, Marilyn. So well, <laughs> well, there's this thing called going red blind, where the cone in the back of your eyes um, oh, yeah. get to where you've seen the red color to where it looks like oh my god it's like supernatural it's just this most oh yeah wonderful brown it's what it looks like to you and then you look away at the trees and you look back and the thing is not a yield sign it's a stoplight and the trees are important <laughs> because green is the opposite of the red spectrum on the, the color wheel and you have to rest the cones in your eyes in order to have any perspective on what you're doing. Yes. And now in oil varnishing, I don't have that problem because I, I don't just sit there with the same pot, turning the viola over and over and over and putting on 15 mm -hmm. coats at a sitting. Um, and my spirit varnish was, was that. And so I just got totally red blind. I thought it was the most beautiful violin at viola. So excited about the color. Go to bed, <laughs> wake up in the morning, appalled. <laughs> well, at least it sounds good and I don't have time to strip it. So just ignore that you're attracting bulls on the way to the competition. <laughs> yes. And and so I went to the competition, and of course you can imagine what being the one who made the bright red stop sign halfway down the third table. I was horribly embarrassed, but you know uh, I learned a lot. Had uh, wonderful feedback from the judges that year, and I self started to self teach. I had had a wonderful background with uh, Chuho Lee in Chicago and with Robert Bynum and Bill Webster. And I was on in Boston now already working at North mm -hmm. Bennett Street School. And I just wanted to get as better as fast as I could. And that's when I started playing every viola. And that year it was probably 40 or so. And then um, through the years, uh, 1986, through the years, um, it's more and more violas yeah. to get through. So yes, you mentioned that. So there's there's a room full of violas. Mm -hmm. The competition room. Mm -hmm. And you you picked up and you played every single one because that room at the time was open all night. Yes, I I would pick some three o'clock three thirty time and I went in and I always took my own bowl because it gives me the most information. And I played every viola in competition, 86, 88, 90, 92, etc., up until 10. And then you see what wins what. Yeah, up until 2010 when I was president and I did not have, literally did not have the time to take the couple of hours yeah. and go up and down. Um, I played a good many of them, but that's when my streak of playing every competed viola that's when it fell away, uh, was when I became president. But I'm kind of back to doing that now. Awesome. And even though there's 175 violas, oh, I at least always get to um, the certificate and award winners. 
and I always cruise and peruse the table full of violas and see what designs people are um, favoring. And, you know, the tone thing, you're likely to get a, a better sounding viola if it's a little on the larger size. Not necessarily, but frequently you can get that uh, basso profundo from a viola, even when it's um, under 16. And I was in search of that C-string sound that sounded like a little mm -hmm. portion of the cello. But think about the Buddha, Marilyn. <laughs> well, I would have taken the patience of the Buddha to write down all of the things that came to mind uh, about the various violas that I was playing. And of course, at this point, all labels are covered. Mm -hmm. Numbers are not the numbers that the instrument came in with. So they're, they're scrambled and anonymous. Mm -hmm. And there's always the, can I pick out the winners thing that uh, you go through and say, well, I'd be surprised if this doesn't get a prize. And just as a musician, I was going through and playing all of the violas. I, they are my passion. And I continue to play every viola I can get my hands on, be it auction, you know, whatever. And uh, have come to have the sound in my mind that I strive for when I'm making a viola. That's great. The cello sound is also in my head and it comes more easily. Violins, uh, I find them the hardest to make. Oh. Uh, I find them the hardest to make truly balanced, powerful, projecting, and easy to play. That's a really hard formula. So violins to me are the hardest. I would say that you you approach cello making from a viola maker's stance. Um, and this is all very esoteric to talk about, but violas are different. They're very different. And a, a lot of it is just that they have been cut down in so many interesting ways and that there are less great old violas than there are great old violins and cellos in good repair. I've always tried to pick up as much as I can from you as a maker about the ways that violas can be great and the arching, the setup, the bass bar are all approached differently. And your cellos sound fantastic, but they don't play like cellos that violinists play. Not violin makers, but violinists. They are mm -hmm. um, so rich and deep and powerful um, in comparison to a violinist cello will be very present and will shriek in thumb position. And your, your instruments require a lot less muscle in order to shake the back row. And it's something I, I think about in my making is the, you know, you've always done your best to tell me more than you're saying when you're giving me feedback about my own stuff. But um, you are a viola maker and it gives you a power that is different in the market. That's uh, very kind. I 
have never stopped researching violas, and you are so right. There's very few antique violas which we should copy. Antonio Stradivari made a dozen. Um, the House of Guarneri, uh, maybe a couple dozen. The House of Amati, maybe three dozen. But and and of course we have the Brescian School to look to for viola inspiration as well. Ooh-wee. There's just very few old ones. Uh, you go to England and the 15 and a half inch violin double so that somebody, if three violinists show up and it's string quartets, they apparently draw straws and one of them has to play viola. Yeah. Um, personally, I would love to just be there and play the viola. Um, <laughs> well, Marilyn, you became president, was it the first time in 2010? Yes, uh, 2009. Uh, I was elected to the presidency the night Obama was elected to the presidency. You were kidding me. <sighs> oh, oh, that's political. <laughs> what did you want to accomplish? As much education as soon as possible, as fast as possible, and in as many ways as possible. That means our, our journals and proceedings and conventions where you simply have to hear the lectures live now with their photos. Some of them become written up, but the old standard of every single word of the proceedings of the event were um, printed and released Mm -hmm. maybe four or five years later, but every word was there. Now, we have moved into a much more rapidly changing world. And Chris, you were editor of the Scroll Magazine, which is our major link to our membership. And then we will have uh, VSA papers, which are scholarly, peer-reviewed, original research. That's great. We still have those, and uh, but the Scroll has become a great way to tell a story uh, and to introduce people to the various things that they even need to think about. The worst part of stepping into violin making is you don't know what you don't know. Yes. Definitely. Well, and, and, uh, I, I try to hand people a metaphor of kicking a boat off from shore into a deep lake it's like you can be as handy with the oars as you want it's going to keep getting deeper the the reason this job uh this this industry trapped me it's the only thing i've ever done that keeps getting harder that keeps getting more complex and that that doesn't mean that i'm finding out things that aren't solvable but there is more and more to break my prejudices the longer I keep at it. And uh, you just have no idea how dumb your prejudices are until you're socialized with uh, others doing the same stuff. Yes. Uh, Playing and learning to uh, make the instruments. It's always reaching for more. I knew that I wanted to be a violin maker because I knew it was something that I would never know everything about. It was a bottomless pit. And I knew I know myself well enough and 
I guess, even knew myself well enough at 18 or 19 to know <laughs> that you needed that. <laughs> I needed something that I wasn't going to hit the end of and get bored. I wasn't going to reach a certain level and then become uninspired. And every instrument is, well, it's whole in my head before I even begin it. And it's just bringing it to fruition and to reality. That's great. Um, and three-dimensional. And continuing to have greater results with what I want to have happen, happen. It turned out to be the right, very much the right line of work for me. Basically, an endless research project. That's awesome. Talking about identity, um, you said something to Rosie that, that she shared with me that she found really profound and that I wanted to hear more about. Um, you said, I identify as the Violin Society of America. Yes, I do. I am a portion of the Violin Society of America. I am a brick in that wall. And I return there uh, and hold it as such an large force in my life because it is a font of knowledge for me. I always come back with something. I always come back with new things to try, new things to think about, new products and tools that I've seen. You know, at this point, I'm not buying tools unless they're like super cool. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like uh, dragon-flamed uh finger planes. Oh yeah. <laughs> but it was um it was a bottomless pit of uh information and the VSA helped me take from that well. Marilyn, when we talked, you spoke many times about it being on your heart to continue education for other people and that that being a part of why you do what you do. You've spent many years teaching. You said to me that a lot of your career was taking our collective knowledge, applying it in a way that more people could be enriched by it. You said something about creating teachable moments. Can you talk to us about some times that you saw this in action in your life? Well, uh, teachable moments um, are few and far between, I fear. But <laughs> one that really was profound was having the one of the cello tone judges take a few of the award-winning cellos and go into a corner of the competition room and play them for us, those of us who had made or entered or maybe even won and he was playing ours. Awesome. Uh, and it was the aha moments that went around that group of a dozen makers with this man playing each instrument and saying, but on this one, do you hear? Mm. And on that one, do you hear this? And I uh, was just astounded looking around me at how everybody else was getting as much out of this as me. So um, I went to the then presidents and proposed a meeting for the morning after the competition results are revealed at our grand banquet and having the first session in the morning be 
those judges which we can twist their arms to stay around for a few more hours, they will play. And it has become, amongst the violin makers, one of the most well-attended events. And I never fail to see, I don't know who's going to be emceeing it next year, but when I've done it, I have never failed to see lights just come on and people will hear their own instrument and then they will hear a double gold um, or a gold for tone and okay they hear it it's really hard to gain perspective when you're proud of yourself enough to enter an instrument because it, it is true if you're working at a certain level that your instruments have merit enough to be on the table. But if your instruments are on the table, your self-worth is on the table with them. So learning to get the perspective that you made sure with, with that program and with the feedback from the judges we get is the only way that, that we stay human as makers and don't just get angry and blow up and we still see that you know we do god we've done fisticuffs at competitions before <laughs> oh, i've seen it a few times oh man uh, <laughs> over something like you photographed my instrument in an unflattering light and gloves get thrown down <laughs> let alone uh I, I have picked someone up who was trying to put hands on a judge and just held them until the judge got away, Marilyn. <laughs> oh, well, good for you. A, a long time ago, the same thing was happening, and I went and got Peter Preer, and he separated it. It was two of his students anyway. He was a big, powerful man, big P. <laughs> I think he was three feet away from him, and they scattered. They... <laughs> They reassessed the situation. Awesome. They went, oh, and they went every direction. So, you know, we protect our judges um, uh, to the best Good. of our ability. What a, what a great teaching moment. Yeah. There's, there's other teaching moments that, you know, mostly they happen in the competition room or in an acoustics lecture where all of a sudden, a whole bunch of math or physics will just fall into place mm. for a person. And, oh, now, oh my God, now I get it. That's what all that nonsense means in real life. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you still have to shut the machines off and go back to your bench and figure out how to take off wood and where. Hallelujah. But the machines are very helpful. Yeah. Well, touching on that, how do you feel about the shift in attitude toward uh, mechanical help and um, utilizing the, the machines and the technology that are available to get to a point where you can then do the important work. Do you feel defensive of traditional mm -hmm. methods or, or do you have a different perspective on it? Uh, my relationship to power tools has been different at different times. I've been doing this for so long that I sort of have phases or periods of time. And 
in from about 1998 to in late 2000s, I had a fast-moving shop in Waltham, uh, Massachusetts, and we did rough a fair amount mm-hmm. of things out on um, North Star Turco. Was this the shared shop with Kevin Kelly and Ben Ruth and, and others? Yeah, and Marco Copiardi and John Crumrine. You guys are killers. What I mean, I would... I was uh, I was learning how to walk then, but I would give anything to have been in that shop with you guys. You are the the pillars of of who my heroes are in this industry. Well, a hundred and twenty five instruments and thirty bows came out of that union over the course of eight years. Wow! It was a it was a wonderful time, and. It worked because none of us were doing repairs for the trade or really much in the way of sales. We were all just doing new making. So if somebody came up the stairs and into the main room, uh, we didn't have the problem some co-ops have of whoever buttonholes them first gets the gig. To put strings on and cut them a new sound post or whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And all of us were just new makers and really trying to avoid doing repairs at that point in time because we were still selling everything uh, that we made pretty promptly, if not with a waiting list. And so we didn't have to do uh, any other things. And I think it worked that way. And watching Ben the glass, the doors to each studio were glass, so you could sit in the main center room and you could watch the mm-hmm. others work. And I picked up things from Ben and from Kevin and from Marco that just by watching, it was like, oh, another way. And I have actually changed how I have done my making partly as a result of watching other people work. And the same is true at Oberlin. Right now, I am clear back to joining planes uh, for the center seams, my real tricked out gents plane that uh, is kind of like a gouge, but you can use two hands. Oh, so you're saying that you've come back from those machine processes to the traditional methods? Yes, I have. Does it feel good? Well, yeah, um, except when I look at my instruments from the side and the plates aren't exactly the same thickness. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, shit, the CNC would have solved that. <laughs> A machine would have left me exactly 4.2 everywhere or 5.1 or whatever I was looking for. But the fluidity of working by hand is what I want to be doing now. So I actually, in my store where I am, I have nothing except a little cutoff saw for cutting off pegs and, uh, you know, power drill and the like. And if I want to do anything major, then I go across town to my brother-in-law's gorgeous mm-hmm. woodworking shop and use joiners and bandsaws and resawing bandsaws and there's even a way of setting up a router to flatten the whole underside of the plate before I cut it out. Oh yeah, set up a sled. Those things exist 
there and mm-hmm. and they're kind of tempting because you know shoulders and arms and joints don't last forever but right now i'm just sort of loving rolling around in the wood chips good for you just uh, <laughs> the, the more that fall off my lap when i stand up it's almost okay i did get something done oh man Brittany gets so mad if she like finds one in my belly button or i get into bed and mm-hmm. then wood chips come out though she's like come on like this is this is your life honey this is who you married <laughs> <laughs> so just make sure there's none that are small enough to be slivers <laughs> yeah marilyn what are you most looking forward to with the uh, convention coming up this fall uh i like the lineup of presenters and the program i always look forward with wonderful uh anticipation to the rare instrument exhibit or a bow exhibit anything that that our dealer members have so generously pulled together things like 15 instruments from the same city excellent examples of all of the workers at that time we've had just amazing things to look at and they are all in private collections and handled with kid gloves and lots of rules and i just find it fascinating Hmm. here's another teaching learning moment and it was for me uh at the last rare instrument exhibit there was it was on french instruments and there was a bass standing in the corner and arnold schnitzer was done doing his judging on the basis for the competition and we i found myself in that room with him and so we took it out together and we looked at it oh incredible amount of Venetian varnish, or I mean, of Venetian color, but uh, Viome varnish. And it was an astonishing base. And we were sitting there pondering how the maker had, instead of a cant on the back, had sort of a cant, but sort of an arch. Mm-hmm. And how he how he left the arch into up into the button. And in those days, uh, mid-1800s in France, it was very common for there to be a lot of or- ornamentation at the button and just below the button on the back mm-hmm. of a base. And so that was all there. And it certainly had not been crushed in any high pressure reason to get the base to come together. And so we were looking at it and looking at it and enjoying, then keep getting distracted by the varnish or what have you. And coming back to how in the world did he execute (laughs) that particular type of canted back. So for those listening, when when you have the top of the back of a bass, it is bent away from the player toward the strings to make it possible to reach around the instrument to use a bow. And forgive me, Marilyn, go ahead. Oh, thank you. Yes. Probably 24 hours later, I ran into Arnold Schnitzer in the hallway of the of the guest hotel, uh, host hotel, and we both looked at each other uh, fingers up in the air and simultaneously said, 
wet sandbags. Awesome. (laughs) That is the only way they could have gotten that beast of a back to bend. And in a curve, not in a cant, and with a center joint that stayed intact. So things like that, where you see it and you wonder and you wonder, and then later it just dawns on you, oh, Okay, I get it. Wow. Those learning moments uh, happen to me on a regular basis at these events. Definitely. There's always someone there to follow up with. I mean, imagine getting the opportunity to go over one of the world's most unusual and beautiful bases with Arnold Schnitzer. Yeah. Who makes some of the world's most beautiful <laughs> bases. <laughs> and it. It is just uh, very rewarding to be there. I never want to sleep. I just want to keep going when I'm there. Marilyn, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an honor to talk to you. It was a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thank you. I do want to remind everybody, the Violin Society of America, we're meeting up again this November 8th and 9th. Richardson, Texas. They say it's in Dallas, but guess what? It's not. It's in my suburb of Richardson. And I'm so thrilled to have all of you out there come and and shake your hand. If you're going, check out Caraway Strings. I hear it's pretty decent. (laughs) It's pretty decent. (laughs) Recording there right now. I'm really looking forward to this. I'm going to be giving a talk on social media, and I'm really looking forward to it. I think that the the programming committee is both glad and afraid, and that's where I like to keep folks that I'm working I'm, with. I'm looking forward to my gotcha questions I've got prepared. Oh, are you gonna? Are you get, what's? Are you gonna heckle me? A little bit. A little bit. Good. Good. <laughs> Marilyn, will you please, as the president, also heckle me? I'll buy you dinner. Oh, with my (laughs) pleasure. (laughs) Well, all you homo sapiens out there, you have a lovely day and we hope to see you in November. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Marilyn. My pleasure. Hi, this is Nick Montopoli from Invoke and this is Listener Feedback. This is for Rosie. Rosie, can I read you this one? Yeah. Uh, so we have someone who wrote in, they wish to remain anonymous. Uh, they were really excited about the women at the bench episode. Thank you so much for listening. Um, if you're listening now, um, they were hoping there might be a part two. She's had to deal with some bad situations and she hoped there might be more discussion on harassment, assault, and discrimination. Um, Rosie, Mm -hmm. you want to field it? Yeah. Um, Okay. So when I started approaching some people for the woman at the bench episode, I'm not going to say every time, but many times there was an assumption that I was going to talk about discrimination, which is weird. I mean, there's, there's definitely stuff that, that happens, not just in this field, but in, in all fields where people take advantage of their power. Um, ultimately, I made the call that I didn't want to introduce women in this field in that light because women are bigger than those issues. Nice. It does weigh on me that, uh, I, this is not the only email that I've gotten like this. Um, and I'm really at this point, I would love to, I would love to explore how we make people in this industry feel safe 
especially when there's um there's a there's a master and there's an apprentice and that is inherently unequal power i don't pretend to have all the answers right now but i would love to get people's feedback on what we do what are some expectations that you should have of an apprentice what are some expectations you should have of a master and how do you keep that a healthy relationship and not just in terms of power but in yeah. terms of pay schedule mm-hmm. compensation uh use of materials like it's it's a minefield education like what are you going to learn when yeah mm-hmm. uh the relationships that i know of that have been the most successful have been ones where there are written agreements in place before people start. And I, I don't think there's enough of that. People tend to shy away from putting things in writing, but it, it definitely lays things out and you have a chance to think about what you're getting into and maybe take it to an attorney. Gosh, that's a lesson I keep learning the hard way. Kiddos, you can always be kinder than what you wrote down as your agreement, mm-hmm. but you can't ever take care of yourself more than what you wrote down as your agreement. So yes, be tough. And that, it's not to say that, you know, the millennial thing, if there is a millennial thing of expecting all this stuff for nothing, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about mm-hmm. uh, if you're working for a place for free, Mm-hmm. Uh, to get education, make sure that's spelled yeah. out and make sure there is a path that if you're going to get paid, what those milestones are. And if you're never going to get paid, mm-hmm. make sure that that's clear too. And there's a chance for you to take care of yourself financially by working someplace else. Which is what was expected of of our generation of makers and restorers heading into shops is if you wanted good training, you are going to be staying in a terrible apartment and working two other jobs because the shop wasn't going to pay you well because they were giving good training. Mm-hmm. And as that changes, um, which it is changing, um, people are much less, I wanted to say comfortable, but much, much less likely to take on multiple people and show them the way things are done well because they're expected to pay a living wage. So there's another side to that sort of uh, yes. millennials expecting stuff without paying their dues, you know, is that uh, the they're breaking down a system which I find is is unhealthy. Yeah, yeah, that goes without that goes without saying that it is unhealthy. And I like their coffee and their hairdos. Oh man, great hair and their beer. <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't have all the answers, but um, if you have. If you had a fantastic uh, apprentice experience, I'd love to hear from you. If you've had one that went sour, it would be nice to know not to expose anybody, but it would be nice to kind of have a rubric for what are the red flags that you look for? How can we help the next person make better choices, safer choices? Chris, you and I were talking earlier. So far, my personal take is, man, it seems a lot safer to go to a school. Mm-hmm. Because there's there's a system of checks and balances in place. There's expectations that are set clearly. But you said you disagree with me. It, yeah, I do. I mean, if you can be the lucky one and find a positive environment where you can learn without going through schooling, you will cut through a few years of safe education. 
which I mean, the, the violin making schools traditionally in the States are there to teach you how to make a violin shaped box and to teach you how to do it conservatively enough that the instrument won't fall apart if the materials you were given weren't understood by the student. And the sensitivity to materials and acoustics that you can get from having a master who's really working one-on-one -on -one with you is something you get out of school thinking that you're hot shit and then have to go start mm -hmm. over to get to. And, and the problem there is that uh, you have to already be good enough to be of value to that maker. I mean, it, I wasn't when I left school, but the kids, which are still friends and are no longer kids that I've employed here and there making my instruments and working with me were. I, I wasn't going to spend my time bringing somebody up to level, which is where the unfairness comes in. Yeah. And I don't want to slam schools, clearly. I can't tell you how many job openings that I see that are requiring you to have graduated from a school. Yeah. Oh, those are ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> you look at them and they, they say, I'm going to, I'm going to take some swipes at some people. If you don't, don't mind uh, anonymously, I'm going to take some swipes. It's, it's ridiculous to read uh, the requirements that they want. They want somebody who's graduated from a school. They want somebody to send a portfolio of work. And then they want you to be able to conform to everything that they want, yeah. which is, is ridiculous. If you're going to put all these roadblocks in place, why not just get somebody that you can mold exactly how you want it? Because that's, it seems like that's what you want to begin with. Yeah. And you'll probably have a much larger pool of applicants. Mm -hmm. And to, to touch on the, the things that I wish worked for apprentices, I've always started by doing a week just to see if we can work together. And then mm -hmm. starting to pay with Tonewood, and then from there starting to pay. I've heard you use the phrase before: hire slowly. Mm -hmm. Hire slow. Mm -hmm. Fire fast. <laughs> so you want to give people a chance to really get to know each other and understand a relationship before they are locked into like a long-term work commitment. Mm -hmm. And starting, especially yeah. for makers, with Tonewood as the payment. For like a week of work, I would fill my my friend Rob Wood's uh, car with with tone wood he could use because that's a really really big hit on a new maker is to get good materials that are old enough to use if you're making stuff and uh, you you hope to be responsible and and financially stable enough to move on from that and pay a good hourly once you can you know leave. A person in your shop to do the work as you expect it done well people men and women if you uh do want to reach out i just want to let you know I, i'm promising you anonymity and uh i hope that we can be helpful in some ways don't be afraid to talk to an attorney yeah if you get handed something feel like you should be able to take that and have it read and looked over because there is a lot of stuff out there a lot of predatory agreements and while it may sound good in the beginning, mm -hmm. somebody else who might not necessarily be familiar with Luthery, but is familiar with life and the law can look at that and say, you know, maybe you should rethink this. And the idea that something won't hold up in court, so it's okay to sign it, doesn't mean that you won't be bankrupted by 
protecting yourself that way. I have to mm-hmm. say non-competes are criminal. They are. If, if it's structured to last a certain amount of time at a certain level, that makes a certain level of business, that makes more sense. I've signed a few non-competes because I felt like it would cost me the job if I didn't, and I didn't have a lawyer look mm-hmm. at it. And I thought to myself, you know, hey, it's a, I know this won't hold up in this state's courts, so it doesn't matter if I sign it. And uh, not on that point, but on other points, I discovered, ladies and germs, that uh, being right doesn't mean you won't spend thousands of dollars getting a judge to throw something out, and it's not worth it. And if you're an employer out there and you're thinking about putting in a non-compete, think about one that actually makes sense. Don't exclude somebody from working in an entire state. Or my favorite was one in the Northeast of this country that said for two states... (laughs) And I'm like, wow, how how little do you think of yourselves to retain customers if you're that worried that you've got to put it to two states? Well said, yeah. And Jerry will find mm-hmm. you, employers. Mm-hmm. Uh, people talk. Yeah, people do talk. Just, just a reminder. <laughs> it's in a small community. Hi, this is Stephen Burnett from Huntington and Maplewood, and this is Coda. Anything else? Yeah, one time, uh, Georg Maivez, who I uh, worked under and was the teacher at the school in Salt Lake City, was doing a uh, ebony crown on a button on a Stradivari violin at the shop. And in order to fit the ebony crown, uh, which had been broken and he was replacing, he took off the tiniest shaving of original buttonwood and he handed it to me and he said, quick, eat this. And so I put it in my mouth because it was a piece of a strad, you know, and he said, swallow the strad. And so I swallowed it. And then he said, now carve that bridge. And so I, I carved the bridge and he picked it up when I was done. And he was like, oh, it did not work. Because oh. <laughs> it still sucked. Oh. <laughs> So that's what apprenticeship will get you is tears. How many times had he done that before to somebody I, else? Maybe maybe not with a strad, but something else. I hope that he hadn't been cutting too many strads off, but yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Omo is the passion project of Rosie Deloach, Chris Jacoby, and Jerry Lynn. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes. You can always connect with us at mail at omopod.com or leave a message on Omophone, 240-686-5345. We love hearing from you and are always taking more questions for listener feedback. This episode edited with love by yours truly. Thanks for listening and thanks for being a part. <laughs>